have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the 10th chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew there in front of you, so you're welcome to use that. When you've found Deuteronomy chapter 10, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. begin reading in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would fulfill your promise in us again today. Your promise, Lord, that there is blessing where your word is read and heard. And so we seek that blessing from you this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand your truth. Father, may your word not fall on hard hearts or sleeping hearts, but may your word penetrate and find its place in hearts that are soft toward you. We offer ourselves to you now and to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? Now, we noted last week as we were in this passage that where the NIV translates chapter 12, verse 12, is what does the Lord ask of you? Most other translations use the stronger word, require. What does the Lord require of you? We noted as well that the question is not, does the Lord require something of you? Because if you ask that question, someone may potentially answer, no, no, the Lord requires nothing of me. And God would not want anyone to answer that way. Moses wouldn't want anyone to answer that way. You would not want to answer that way for your life because it would lead to truly what would be a desolate life for you. God does require something of us. And it's a misunderstanding of the character of God to think that he does not or cannot require something of us. It's a misunderstanding of grace to believe that somehow grace forbids any requirements to enter into our lives because we are living by grace. Everywhere there is grace in this passage, this event that we've been looking at over the course of the last several weeks. God, in, in what must be called extraordinary, extraordinary grace, answered Moses' prayer on behalf of these people. God, in what must be called extravagant grace, forgave them their sins. They're worshiping around that golden calf, calling it their God. God, in what must be called accommodating grace, granted these people a second chance to start all over again. And with his finger, he wrote again the Ten Commandments on stones like the ones that Moses had broken in the presence of the people. 
That's a lot of grace. That's a lot of grace. Given by a really good God to people who don't deserve it. That's a lot of mercy. Extended by a very patient God to thankless, faithless people who really, truly deserved to be destroyed. But that's our God, isn't it? The God of grace and the God of mercy. And in the midst of all this grace, in the midst of all this grace, but not in exchange for it, hear me in that, in the midst of all this grace, but not in exchange for it, God also has requirements. Look in verse 11. Look at this in the past. God requires this of Moses. He says, arise, get up, go. And he tells him to lead the people, to take possession of the land that he promised, take them to the promised land. But listen, as always, God cares first. God cares first about our heart. What's in here? What we feel, what we believe, who we are. God cares about that first before what we do. And so as we saw last week, what enabled Moses to do the thing that God required of him, the thing that Moses might not have been very excited about doing, which was lead again these faithless, obstinate, sinful people. What enabled Moses to do that was seeing this fresh vision of God. God told Moses, there's a place near me on a rock where you can stand where my glory will pass by. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And God did that for Moses. He came down in a cloud and he stood there with him. And when Moses saw the glory of the Lord, he bowed down and worshiped. And then what did he do? He got up and he did the thing that God required him. That's all Moses needed. To do what God required, and that was seeing the glory of God. The glory that Moses describes here in verse 14. The glory that by necessity belongs to the one who owns the heavens. The heavens of heavens, the highest heaven, belongs to God. A glorious God. The earth, everything in it, belongs to God. A God of glory. The glory that belongs to the God that Moses describes in verse 17. Look there, as the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The great and mighty and awesome God. Seeing the glory of God changes your heart. Seeing the glory of God is what motivates you and motivates me. It's what compels us to love and to serve God and to do what he requires of us. And so how good it is of God. Look how good it is of God. To provide for his people what they most need. When he requires a difficult, courageous behavior from Moses, he first shows Moses his glory. And when Moses sees the glory of God, he can do anything. Look, I I felt compelled to review all this. If you were here last week, you've heard it all before. But I felt compelled to to repeat it because so many of you weren't here last week. And because we can never hear about God's glory too much. Never. Never hear too much about the glory of God. And because I would never want to put out before you requirements of God, the things that that God asks of you and, and of me, doing things before we first remember who we are to be. And we are to be people who are gazing at the glory of God. So before you start doing anything, start looking for the glory of God. 
We used to play I Spy with our kids. Anybody ever play I Spy? Played it all the time. I'm sure I have too. You know, we'd all be in the car, whatever. And I would say, I spy something yellow. So all five kids would start eagerly looking everywhere. Where's something yellow? Because they want to be the first. Oh, I see it. I see it. I see it. You spy, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is, the thing that I spied that was yellow. Probably a deer crossing sign. I don't know. But that's how we should live our lives. You and I. We should live our lives just like that. Eagerly looking everywhere around us for the glory of God. When you go outside and you look at the beauty of creation, and you're enjoying it, remember that the purpose of creation is to declare the glory of God. That's what scripture says. So look for the glory of God in the beauty that is captivating you. When you look through a telescope and you see the vastness of this universe, and it is vast. Look for the glory of God in the vastness of it. When you have a microscope in front of you and you're looking at a cell there and you see all the intricacy of that cell, look for the glory of God there. And if that cell holds more secrets that it hasn't yet given up, that's just more opportunity for us to look for the glory of God who designed it. When you open the word of God, this word right here, Be eager to spy the glory of God here because Scripture, this book here, is not first and foremost uh, a, a rule book. This is not first and foremost a law book. This is not first and foremost a how to book. This, the Word of God, is first and foremost a glory book. That's what it is because it reveals the story to you and me of a really, really, really glorious God. And everywhere his glory is revealed here because he is a God of such glory. When you and I look at the person of Christ, we're looking at God's glory revealed. And what glory we see. What glory revealed in his heart of compassion that caused him to reach out his hand and and touch blind eyes so they could see. And touch deaf ears so they could hear. And and touch lame feet so they could walk. Hands that reached out and and touched dirty lepers. And made them clean. What glory is revealed. The compassion of Christ that caused him to speak such words of hope. And such words of healing saying to people, go. Go. Your sins. They're forgiven. What words must Peter have heard from the lips of Jesus that compelled Peter to stay with Jesus when everyone else was deserting him? Calls Peter to proclaim, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Such were the glory words that Jesus spoke. That Peter knew that neither he nor the disciples would hear any words like this from anyone else but Jesus. And what glory in Jesus' boldness To speak the truth boldly, speaking the truth about sin, speaking the truth about righteousness, speaking the truth about judgment. What powerful glory is revealed when he took the whip in his hand and he went to the temple and he drove out the money changers. Because passion and zeal for his father's house, the temple, the earthly dwelling place of the glorious God, that consumed him. 
And when Jesus was passionate about it, when he was clearing the temple, no one could stop him. And of course, what glory in the cross. In the upper room, just before Jesus left with his disciples, to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be arrested, Jesus prayed. And he prayed this, Father, the hour has come. Here it is. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. See, there's glory in the cross of Christ. So everything about Jesus proclaims the glory of God. Jot down this reference so you can read it again and again today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When you and I are looking at Christ and everything about him, we are seeing the glory of God. I could talk about this all day long. I tell you, if I never talked about anything from this pulpit ever again, but the glory of Christ, that would be enough. That would be all that we need. That would be what would transform us the most. I know that there are churches that are filled to overflowing this morning. The parking lots are full. You probably can't get a seat. And they're telling people, they're giving him three or four or five steps to a better, blah, blah, blah. You fill in the blank. They're giving them steps to overcome this or that or the other thing. And that's all well and good because Scripture does tell us how we should live our lives. But that is putting the proverbial cart before the horse, literally. Causing that poor horse to push that cart from behind. Because it's looking for and looking at the glory of Christ that brings transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all, we all, it's talking to believers, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I want to read that again, this time from the New Living Translation. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see, can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Look, 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 look at the promise that God is holding out here. That as you you and I look at Christ, as we meditate on him, as we contemplate the glory of the Lord, you and I are transformed. And what are we transformed into? This is so unbelievable. The image, the likeness of Christ. We look at him, we look for his glory, we study his glory, and we become like him. We're transformed. Suddenly our words become words of grace, like his word, gospel, words of life. Our actions become actions of compassion as His Word. Our passion, our zeal, becomes for the holiness of God and His glory as Jesus' passion was. Our lives become something we view not as something to hold on to for ourselves, but we begin to view our lives as something to pour out for the sake of others as Jesus viewed His life. But the transformation only takes place when we're looking at the glory of God. 
always playing glory I spy. How often are you playing that game? Because seeing the glory of God motivates us to do, actually compels us to do everything that the Lord requires of us. In fact, we see the glory of God and we have more of a you-can't-hold-me-back attitude. You know, Philip said in the upper room, the Last Supper, Lord, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Show me the Father. That's all I need. And though Philip didn't understand that when he was looking at Jesus, he was seeing the Father. Never, nevertheless, that was the desire of Philip's heart. Show me the Father and that is all I need. How often do you say that? Just reveal yourself to me. Show me your glory. That's all I need. Seeing the glory of God. That's what keeps our hearts soft toward Him. And that's what God is after this morning. He's after my heart. He's after your heart. Hearts that are soft toward Him. And that's what I want us to talk about next as we move on. That's getting to our hearts. You know, Charles Spurgeon is called the Prince of Preachers. Even today, Though he's been dead for like 150 years, he's still called the Prince of Preachers, and he tells this story. He tells a story about a blacksmith who had a dog. And the blacksmith took his dog to work with him every day. But when the blacksmith heated up the metal and he began to pound on that metal with the hammer and the sparks began to fly, the dog was afraid, and, and he would run away and hide. But slowly... Slowly, the dog began to change. When the sparks would fly, he would run away. He would flee, but he wouldn't hide. He would watch. And then when the sparks began to fly, he would run, but he wouldn't run as far. Eventually, the dog didn't run at all when the sparks began to fly. And and finally, the dog became so accustomed to the flying sparks that he would just go to sleep under the anvil while all the sparks were flying around him. In the sermon that Spurgeon uses this story, he talks about the many people who profess faith in Christ who are asleep, people who are asleep under the truth of God's Word, people who are impervious to the truth that's flying all around them, everywhere. So we have to ask ourselves, are you asleep? I mean, I'm not, because I'm awake, but I can tell you some funny stories about people who sleep during sermons. You want to hear some? That's for another time. (laughs) But don't let it be you, because you never know when I might point that out. We do, we have to ask ourselves, how much are we letting the truth of God's word into our hearts? How soft is our hearts? We've got to protect our hearts. That's what scripture says. Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from your heart. You see, God has fulfilled in us the promise that he made to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Isn't that awesome? Sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Is that good news? I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep 
my laws. That's what God has given us. What are you doing? What are you doing to protect your heart? What are you doing to take care of this precious gift that God has given to you? Look in verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Fear the Lord. Walk in His ways. Love the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart and soul. We've already heard this back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about three years ago. <laughs> you know, I, I hope to finish Deuteronomy before the Lord returns, but I don't know if we're going to. But back in Deuteronomy 6, we read it here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus sums up the law of the prophets, which is, is scripture, by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the greatest commandment. Jesus says so. With all your being, with all your being, love the Lord. Love the Lord. And you don't need me to describe what that love looks like. So that if you don't love, you say, well... Craig never explained. He never really described what that love is. I know nobody ever really told me what it is, and so I didn't do it. No, you know what it is. You know what love feels like. You know what you want to do for the, for the person that you love. You know that there's not one bit of obligation or have to when it comes to arranging time to be together with that person. You want to do it. And I don't just mean husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend. I mean, we have friends that we love and we just love to spend time with them. We love to do things for them. And so we can dissect the Hebrew word for love. We can dissect the Greek word for love or the three Greek words for love and all the nuances of meaning as if we don't know. As if God hasn't created us to know intuitively what it means to love. We know what it is. We know how to love the Lord. Why don't we do it? Look now in verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. It's kind of strange, isn't it, that this command comes in the midst of all these stories that Moses has told these people about the grace and the mercy of God. All the things that God has done on their behalf. You would think that that would be enough. That Moses could put a great big old period there and say, enough said. Why would these people need to be told to love a God who's done so much for them? It should be a moot point. And yet, here is verse 16. And here stands this command. Circumcise your heart. See, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And God instituted that covenant with Abraham when Abraham was an old man. But it was a sign. It was a symbol of the covenant relationship between them. It was a physical manifestation that Abraham belonged to God. Abraham was set apart to God. And there was no mistaking it. And that's the point Moses is making here uh, in verses 14 and 15. Though the heavens 
and the earth belong to God, though there is nothing that does not belong to Him or is inaccessible to Him, yet God, in spite of all of that, in spite of being the owner of the heavens and the earth, yet He chose to love Abraham and his descendants after him. And circumcision was the sign of that close relationship between God and His people. It was a symbol that was supposed to represent a reality. And that reality being a relationship of love. Circumcision represented other truths as well. It symbolized commitment or buy-in to this covenant because, believe me, no adult male is going to sign the consent form for this procedure unless he is totally bought in. Unless he's totally bought in to this covenant with God, he, he would never make this commitment. But Abraham does. The procedure itself, the cutting away that it required, symbolized the cutting away and the removal of the impurities and sin in a person's life, cutting away from your heart, whatever might make it calloused. And that's the point of comparison in these verses. Something forms around our hearts, something that makes us stubborn and obstinate. It's got to be cut away throughout Scripture. God's glory is on display, but so is the human heart. And we see time and time again the hardness of the human heart. Even in people who are supposed to love the Lord. Hardness toward their loving and giving Father. We see this emotional distancing from the intimacy with God. A refusal to let the truth of God and what God requires penetrate the heart. We talked about it yesterday. As a community group leaders, as we met together, this attitude that my mind is made up, so don't confuse me with facts. You live that way, and so do I. We do, because we want what we want. And if what we want is not what God wants for us, then we callous our hearts toward Him. We harden them. We steel ourselves against God, or, or we go to sleep under the teaching of His truth. Because we want to keep doing what we want to do. What we enjoy doing. Now we are God's people. Like the people of Israel were God's people. We have the truth of God like the people of Israel had the truth of God. We hear the truth of God's Word over and over and over again like the people of Israel heard the truth of God over and over again. We have these wonderful grace stories as the people of Israel had these wonderful grace stories, and yet you and I, in spite of all that, harden our hearts against God as the people of Israel harden their hearts against God. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And so we see this principle. God has given us, you know, a new heart. And as we are receptive to the light of God, as we are receptive to the truth of God, He gives us more and more and more truth, so we have an abundance of it. But those who harden their hearts against the truth of God, those who close their eyes to the light of God, even what they have, will be taken from them. Soft hearts receive more. Hard hearts do not. And so it makes, makes it worth it to keep a soft heart. That's why you and I have to guard our hearts against the hardness so that it doesn't creep in imperceptibly so we become like this dog asleep while the sparks 
are flying around us. Hardness of heart is a universal problem because sin is a universal problem. Sin is my problem. You probably believe that about me, but sin is my problem. But sin is your problem as well. Sin is all of our problems. When we turn in faith to Christ, God removes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, but we've got to take care of the heart that God gives us to keep it soft toward him. A couple of weeks ago, we sang the song, Arise. We talked about Charles Wesley, the man who wrote it. Well, the last song this morning, also written by Charles Wesley. And this is a quote from Charles Wesley's mother, Susanna, a woman who had 19 children. Think about that. (laughs) 19 children. But she wrote this letter to her son. And this is a quote. A mother writes this, Take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. That's wise counsel from a mother to her, her young man of a son. A mother who knows the hardening effects and the callousing effects of sin in our lives. It hardens our hearts. And the more you and I sin, the more we fail to call it sin, the more we try to justify it and say that it's not sin, the more we refuse to repent of that sin, the harder and the more calloused our hearts will become. And you know that's true in your life. Keep sinning. Don't call it sin. Don't repent. Your heart becomes hard. Now, I remember counseling a young man years ago. And he had had sex outside of marriage with his girlfriend. And he was truly, completely devastated when he told me about it. He was literally sobbing, really. Tears streaming down his cheeks. And I told him that the tears were good. Because the tears showed a heart that was soft toward God. It revealed a heart that really wanted to live for God and to please Him. But I told him this as well. I said, you know what? You will never cry. You'll never cry over this again. And unfortunately, that was the case. This sin became such a pattern in the life of this young man that he never cried over it again. As a matter of fact, his... Hard got so, his heart got so hard in this area that he couldn't even imagine that he had ever cried over it in the first place. That's a sad place to be. Life hardens our, our hearts as well. You know, we don't trust in the goodness of a sovereign God, and, and so bitterness creeps in. Because bad things happen to us. They do. Bad things happen in the world. Our brothers and sisters in in Iraq, sad things happen. God disappoints us. We don't know what he's doing. We don't see what he's doing. And the more disappointed we become with God, the, the harder our hearts become. But you and I, you know what? We deaden, our, we, we harden our hearts to our own detriment. We think somehow we're punishing God because he hasn't pleased us, but we're really only punishing ourselves. 
What do you think you can gain? What do you think you can gain from stealing your heart against God? Nothing. Because you know what? God is not your enemy. God is your friend. He's my friend. He has your best interests in heart, at heart and everything he asks or requires of you. In fact, Jesus said, I have come that you might have a full life and an abundant life. Circumcise your heart. Keep a soft heart toward God. What do you gain by avoiding the Lord? What do you gain by distancing yourselves from him? Well, I'll ignore him for I just can't face him now. What do you gain by that? Nothing. Because he's designed you and me to have a close and intimate relationship with him. Because we can pour out our hearts to the Lord no matter what, like no one else on earth. You know, we sang our dilemma earlier in the service. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's the truth, isn't it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it. Seal it. Seal it for your courts above. So you and I don't need to wander from God. We don't need to allow life and sin and disappointment to harden our hearts. We just hold out the heart that God has given us back to Him. Here it is, Lord. Take it. Keep it soft. I can't finish without saying this. Because I don't know everybody who's here in this room, and you might be here this morning, and you have a, a heart of stone. Your heart is hard. Because you've never allowed God to do a heart transplant on you. To take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And believe me, a heart of flesh is so wonderful. So if you've never done that, you need to confess that you have a hard, stony, sinful heart. But the glorious Jesus of compassion we've talked about, you know, he'll hear your prayer. As you confess that sin, he'll take that heart of stone out and he'll give you this gift of a new, soft heart. And the promise of a full and abundant life. So if you've never done that, I'm going to pray now that you will do that. I'm going to pray for all of us, so... Uh, Let's bow our heads and uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for the truth of your word. And Father, if we would all be honest, we would admit how easy it is and how often it has been that we have been like the dog, asleep under the anvil. Lord, your truth is flying uh, all around us, but we, we sleep while it's happening. Lord, our hearts too often are impervious. We don't let your truth in because that requires, Lord, that we change our lives and, and that's often something that we don't want to do. Father, help us this morning to put first things first. As we're looking at you, as we are looking at your glory, as you promise in your word, you will transform our lives more and more into your image. And all those other things that we think we need, that we think we want, Lord, we'll much more easily give them up or will much more easily name them what they are sinful because they're just not worth the exchange. Your glory is so much higher, so much grander, so much greater. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us be people who look for your glory and people who circumcise our hearts. Lord, who, who cut away the sin, the impurities. Lord, who who don't live with or tolerate a hard life, hard heart, but are always looking, Lord, to you and to your truth for the change that you bring. 
Father, for those who are here this morning who have never had that heart transplant, it truly is a miracle. And none of us can do it or did do it on our own. It it took a a miraculous work of your spirit to convict us of our sin, to show us that our heart is hardened by sin, to show us that we need a new heart and a new life, one that only you can give. And so I pray, Lord, if there are any of those here this morning, that that miracle will happen right now in this time and this place by the power of your spirit. Do the transplant right now, Lord, even as I pray. Thank you for your power. We thank you, you're a good God. We thank you that oh, you, you, you want these things for us, and so you give them to us. So we thank you and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.